When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Wynn. Welcome to the Roger Report podcast in association with the Sunland Community Soup Kitchen. As we once again find ourselves reflecting on an away trip where we haven't picked up maximum points, which means we're on a run of just one win in eight games on the road at the business end of the season. But to help me gauge where we stand as we enter an international break, we're very pleased to be joined by none other than Tang T Sports presenter Simon O'Rourke. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm not bad. Good to speak to you again. We spoke a few times. Well, I think this is a the hat trick, I think this is the, the third time we've spoke this season, but how are you keeping? Uh, I'm not bad at all, thank you. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Glad that the days are getting longer and the nights are getting shorter. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, glad that we're getting to the business end of the season as well and all that it brings us. That's it. Last couple of days, it's been beer garden weather almost, hasn't it? We're, get, we're really getting hard, there, we? We're getting there. <laughs> well, I think that the last time we spoke to you or recorded a pod like this, it was um, early September in, in that, in the early international break, actually. And we're only a handful of games into the season then, but things were looking up <laughs> at that point. We've got a fair bit to catch up on. Um, but generally, from the off, it seems to be business as usual and things feel a little bit gloomy at the minute, Simon. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, I think it's a strange time at the football club. It kind of depends if you're glass half full or glass half empty at the moment, I think. Because Alex Neal's, what, eight games? He's only lost one of them, but he's only won three of them. and. They're still in the, you know, after the goal of Straw Lincoln, they're still in the top six, but only just. And there's teams below them with games in hand. Yeah. The ownership thing has angered people. <laughs> we'll get the January that. transfer window <laughs> was stupid. The change of management was badly handled. But at the end of it all, I prefer in life to try and keep the glass half full. And they are still in a position where the football club could be promoted at the end of the season. And obviously there's a million steps to jump if they're going to get there, but it's still there. It's not completely gone down the plug hole. Although the sort of mid-January onwards slump was kind of startlingly fast. Yeah, well, that, that's brilliant because I think you've mentioned in that quick intro everything that we're going to go through. So um, <laughs> we'll need to get into it. Before we get into details of what's happening on the pitch, and we'll, we'll get into that, obviously, but uh, I wanted to start with one or two things off the pitch first, um, because it has been just over a year since Carol Louis-Dreyfus became the new club owner. We haven't heard too much of him publicly in that time, probably through 
kind of the, the club's media side, if you like. Um, I mean, you said last time we caught up that it was difficult to get time with him. I think it was still kind of COVID restrictions were still knocking around, still lingering. But has it been difficult for the local media to get access to, to speak to him? Completely, yeah. Uh, he basically hasn't, really. Hmm. Now, for context, it, it's not massively unusual for owners of football clubs to not speak to the media very often. But in this case, no, really, that, that there hasn't been a sort of open forum or an open channel whereby the local media have, have been able to speak to Kirill Louis-Dreyfus or, or particularly Christian Speakman, although he has done stuff, I know, with uh, with Phil and James, like, you you know, local writers. But no, not so, not so much with the owner. As I say, the context of that is that sometimes football owners just don't speak very often. But no, there hasn't been that chance. I know there's been the couple of carefully managed two-minute segments on Talk Sport, but really that's been it. Look, he's a young guy. He's not been keen to jump into the media side of things. Yeah, there's still an air of mystery about him and indeed about the whole situation, isn't there? Yeah, he makes me feel old. I know, I know that much is true. But uh, it, it was uh, recently revealed that uh, Kirill Louis-Dreyfus holds uh, 41% of the shares which came out and the rest is split amongst various individuals, including the former owners. There was clearly some reaction to this. I mean, you mentioned it up front. And I think people probably had an inkling it was there or thereabouts. But do you think it was the poor communication on the club's part that maybe made it a bigger issue than than it should have been? Definitely. I think the club basically uh, tried to be clever here and have ended up with egg on their faces because if they'd come out and said it when the deal was originally done and said that Stuart Donald is going to maintain this quite hefty shareholding and Charlie Methan will also maintain some. I mean, I know it was known that they were still involved in a shareholding capacity, but if they just put out the numbers and said, look, the controlling share now belongs to Kira Louis-Dreyfus, he will make the decisions, he's running the club. If they'd been upfront about that, they could have avoided this sort of recent mess that they found themselves in. I think the idea of the non-disclosure agreement stuff is, I thought, I just think it was unnecessary because what, what one of the obvious functions of a non-disclosure agreement is that it makes you think that there's something to hide. And it was always going to come out, you know, certain people who, who, who I don't need to name, were always going to find a way to get to the bottom of what's going on with ownership. And if they'd just been upfront about it in the first place, it, it just... It wouldn't have been popular, but it, it it would have been better and it would have avoided this sort of nasty taste being left in the mouth. Yeah, that's it. Uh, but, but I mean, having said that, from my point of view, I don't think it made a huge difference in terms of, you know, how we went out of business in the summer and January. So, I mean, in terms of, a, yes, you can argue off the pitch or whatever, but maybe on the pitch, I can't see that, you know, whether it was 41% or 51% having that much of an impact. No, I agree with that. I think the the way the club conducted its transfer business in the summer when they were definitely sort of going for a plan um, and sort of, you know, they had an idea and, and they were trying to stick to it. No, I agree. This this feels like Kira Louis-Dreyfus and, and Christian Speakman are the people who are calling the shots. I very much agree. I mean, I, I've said it, you know, it's left a bad taste in people's mouths. I realise it's important and I, I realise people want to know who owns the football club. And I realise that the two gentlemen who previously were in charge of it are not popular and people would like to see the back of them in every possible way. I'm kind of with you and I, I don't think it's as important as perhaps some people make it out to be. I do believe that, that Kira Louis-Dreyfus and Christian Speakman and their ownership group are the people running the club. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I mean that was the aspect kind of on the pitch or the, the impact on the pitch, but uh, I'm not sure how much you've been in and around the club recently or over the last kind of six months or since the last time we talked, but do you see differences in and around the club where it's clearly a new ownership 
or has it just felt like business as, as usual kind of when you've been in and around the club? Not been in and around that much. Again, it, it, it's been slow to open back up particularly. I mean, for example, up to this week anyway, uh, and I'm not particularly judging them for it, but um, the club is still doing uh, their pre-match press conferences on Zoom, whereas a lot of other clubs have, have actually gone back to face-to-face. But as I say, not particularly judgy about that. I don't, I don't, I don't mind as such. But So not, not really been around in and around the club that much. I Generally, I think it feels... I would say a little bit different. I, th- I think there's more, there's a bit more focus on fan engagements. There's a little bit of a move in that direction and an effort to try and understand how important the fans are to the whole ecosystem of the football club. Mm. I think it's generally all right. And obviously, as we discussed the last time I was on, clearly they had a plan for this season and that was interesting to see. I think gradually things are kind of changing for the better, but there's still that sort of overwhelming weight of being in League One that everyone at the football club and, and every fan of the football club is still carrying. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mentioned um, that we talked at the beginning of the season on this podcast, but um, you were asking me the questions for Tyne T's uh, news back in November regarding the future of Lee Johnson. And I said at the time that I thought it was too early then to pull the trigger, but uh, then after 6-0 defeat at Bolton at the end of January, he was sacked as we sat third in the table. And the owners made the point that it was more than just that result at Bolton. Um, there were rumours around the signing of Jermaine Defoe. That was in the mix. We had a bit of a kind of Jekyll and Hyde in terms of our form. So, I mean, going back to that, what did you make of that? Essentially, it was the first big decision that Louis Dreyfus had or, or Christian Speakman. Uh, what did you think of that decision to let Lee Johnson go? Um, two sides to this. Firstly, let's talk about the football side. Then there's the how they handled it. Um, so we'll get to that. The football side, I could genuinely see both ways with this. I'm not a fan of knee-jerk reactions. And to sack a manager after a 6-0 defeat at Bolton, in a way, felt like a knee-jerk reaction. But as we all know, it was not the first time that that sort of crumbling performance had happened this season. Mm. And there was more to it than just the disaster games, the the Rotherham, the Sheffield Wednesday, the Portsmouth. Sunderland have have thrown away dozens of points. Well, I I think a conservative estimate, they've, they've thrown away nearly 20 points. They've frittered away that amount of points. And the majority of that happened on Lee Johnson's watch. I'm thinking of Games like Fleetwood, where they blew the two-goal lead. I'm thinking of the games, the Shrewsbury and Accrington games, where they were playing against 10 men and they couldn't see it out and they didn't take all three points. I'm thinking of the daft goal they gave away against Oxford and then didn't win at the Stadium of Light. And there was a carelessness about Lee Johnson's team, some of which you have to put down to, to the young nature of it, but there was a carelessness about it. And I don't think in many respects it was unreasonable for Lee Johnson to lose his job. He, you know, he'd been in the job for what? He'd, he'd done a, a, just over a year, a year and a bit. And the, the patterns were there. Um, he came in with that reputation of streaky Lee. And it, that is kind of how it turned out. In a way, he can count himself, I think, a little bit unfortunate. Obviously, they were in third place at the time. They were top of the table just a few weeks earlier. He'd won a couple of Manager of the Month awards. But in some respects, I get it. I get, I get the idea. And if, if the ownership decided we do not believe that this man is going to get Sunderland out of the division, then 
they were entitled to make that decision, but they needed to do it better than they did it. Yeah. I mean, just on that decision as well, because it's bizarre looking at it if you just take this season standing on its own for for Lee Johnson. But do you think he suffered from a bit of a hangover due to how last season ended up? Probably. And and I think that might have factored into the decision as well, because I mentioned the disaster games, but an an equally disastrous game was the playoff semi-final first leg at Lincoln. And it was another one of those sort of inexplicably listless away performances. And I think that part of the decision might have been made on the basis this is not going to be an automatic promotion season. It's going to be the playoffs again. Can we risk another scenario like that where they're not, for whatever reason, either mentally or physically ready in a, in a way playoff semi-final first leg? I know, I know a lot of people wanted them to move on from him at the end of last season. I did think that that was too early and I think they were right to stick by him. But it, I, I don't know. I, it's an unusual one. Where managers are usually sacked when teams are doing horrendously and Sunderland weren't doing horrendously. They just had a horrendous day at Bolton. But uh, as I said, I am prepared to kind of see the ownership's viewpoint in just thinking the Bolton result isn't the reason we're doing it, but it is the straw that has broken the camel's back. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I mean, just before we come on to the recruitment process, um, you did mention kind of that longer term thinking that, you know, seem to be coming out of the club. And and going back to when we, we talked at the beginning of the season, you know, much was made of that long-term plan in the summer. And I mean, just to kind of quote you from, from that podcast back in September, you actually said, I'm really enjoying the way it almost doesn't feel like Sunderland and it feels like they've got a bit of a plan and they're trying to stick with it. Do you think in sacking Lee Johnson, they kind of veered from that path or do you think it, they've still got that long-term thinking behind the scenes? I think they still have a long-term vision, but the sacking of Lee Johnson and some of the January transfer window, I think has kind of shown that they've wobbled a bit and they've lost a little of the courage of their convictions. The other point I would make about Lee Johnson is that no judgment on Alex Neal. It's it's too early to make a a profound judgment on him, but I don't think Sunderland will be any worse off. In fact, they might be better off points-wise if Lee Johnson was still a manager now. But, you know, we, as discussed, I, I can see the football reasons for moving on from him. In terms of the long term, ultimately, the, the, the manager's the, the one piece that you can always change. And I, I think that they've still got a long term plan for younger type players, but they just came to the conclusion that they weren't going to get automatically promoted this season. And, you know, they wanted to change something. And the thing you can change is the manager. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, going on to that recruitment process that, that that went into after Lee Johnson left. I mean, it's it's I mean, from a personal point of view, I found it a bit messy, you know, with the whole Roy King saga that went on. Yeah. You had Darren McAnthony at Peterborough, he claimed that we offered Grant McCann a contract, and then obviously we ended up with with Alex Neal. We lost the two games during the search for a new manager. I mean, you you might have been a bit more in the north than the average fan I'm not quite sure but uh, did it seem as messy kind of from your point of view as it as it did the fans yeah it did there was leaks there was people putting names forward in the media there was Roy Keane doing whatever Roy Keane was doing there, there was there was probably a bit too much methane for my liking sort of in the background there which I should say just to go back to the ownership thing for one point I don't particularly think it's good for the club that that gentleman still briefs a bit off the record but it just wasn't very well handled. Now, now here's what I think that they should have done. When you run a football club, uh, you've got to be fairly cold-hearted and a bit of a bastard sometimes. And if they'd made the decision 
to get rid of Lee Johnson after the Bolton game, that's fine. I think what they should have done was leave him in place for the Doncaster and Cheltenham games, which he would have won, and then get your ducks lined up in a row behind that. Then, say they'd done that and won those two games, and then they pulled the trigger, they would have to live with 24 hours of people saying, oh, how can they do that? What nasty people. But that would have been a more professional, clinical, effective way of doing it because the two games were just disgraceful. Any Sunderland team, but this Sunderland team should have won those games. To lose them both was absolutely terrible. I don't blame the guy who they put in charge because it, it was just basically there was nobody else there to pick the team. But they, they were effectively were without a manager for two games and it, it was ridiculous. And that is six points that they threw away to add to the pile of points that they've thrown away this season. It was really, really badly handled. The Roy Keane stuff, it just, it, it ultimately, it didn't help anybody, did it? It was a good story. Yeah. It was a good yarn, but it, it was just a waste of everybody's time. I mean, I don't think Roy Keane minded having his name out there in terms of yeah. being perhaps interested in going back into football management. I think he, he probably came out of it okay, and his name and, you know, his brand is probably, you know, back in the mind of a few club chairmen. Uh, so I don't think he's come out of it too badly. But it, it was just such a long-winded and flawed process. And you get the feeling that, you know, the management, the, the, the ownership sort of prides itself on, it, on, its, on its business strategies and it, it's, it's, it's sort of management speak and that kind of thing. And they were talking about the process they were going through and an exhaustive process. That's fine. But while they were doing that, they threw away six points against two crap teams. And the whole, the raison d'etre for the move was to give them a better chance of being promoted. And, and in fact, all they did was remove any chance of automatic promotion by messing about for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just listening to that whole answer to that question, I mean, the obvious next question for me is, you know, talking about the questions that are being asked of, of Christian Speakman. I mean, the decisions around the, the change of manager, the timing, the recruitment process. I mean, it, it's fair to say from my point of view, from some fans' point of view, also listening to your answer, that that question should be asked of, of Christian Speakman. Yeah, I think questions should be asked of them. Also, I would say that Christian Speakman is young for the job he's doing and still comparatively new to the job he's doing. And Kiralu Dreyfus is just young anyway. And he is kind of learning on the job. They both are. So I agree that they should be held to account about how they've done the job. But I don't necessarily think that Speakman needs to lose his job immediately. There is such a thing as learning from your mistakes. And it wasn't well handled but basically don't do it again would kind of be my thing and you talked about the plan which I, I still hope and believe that they have the manager's already gone if, if you get rid of the, the sporting director or football director as well it, I mean then then you're just dying again really aren't you yeah so it's all very well to to you know want scapegoats and people to blame and somebody loses their job over this but ultimately is that is that going to help the football club or do you just need to kind of stick with it and just believe in it yeah yeah and I mean I mentioned the the January transfer window the obvious one I mean we'll get straight into the Jermaine Defoe transfer I mean there was hints that Lee Johnson wasn't sold on it but it generated 
a lot of excitement with the fans, especially with how the, the training ground was kind of stalked out and how the news broke and all of that kind of side to it. Um, yeah, but but yeah. I mean, just generally bringing Defoe to the club, although it was exciting, was it possibly a sign that the strategy is a bit confused in terms of you know long-term thinking versus doing things that they just want to do in the here and now? Yes, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Shout out We Philly, by the way. <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't particularly understand the Jermaine Defoe signing because, well, thus far it hasn't really worked. He hasn't scored. He, you know, kind of looks like a, to say he looks like a 39-year-old, that, that conjures up images of the 39-year-old playing Sunday League football. He, that's not what he looks like, but he looks like a professional footballer who's 39 years old. And I'm not I'm not sure he's what they needed. And the, the resource that will have had to go in to getting that deal done and paying his wages for the rest of the season, I do think might possibly have been better used elsewhere. It was not, in my view, the only sin of the January transfer window, but because it was so eye-catching and because you've now got this ridiculous situation where you've got a load of teenagers and and a bloke who's twice their age in the squad. And I mean, Aidan McGeady's been there anyway, but it does strike me as, as slightly muddled thinking. And, just just a little bit as well. I, I think they, somebody got caught up in the in the in the romance of it and, and didn't really think too much about the reality of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how it looked to me. I mean, uh, just going on that um you mentioned kind of wasn't the only sin, I assume you were kind of hinting at um leaving us slightly short at the back when, when Tom Flanagan left. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, again, be cold and be businesslike when you run a football club. You, you, you're not you're doing it for the benefit of the club, not for the individual's benefit. And um, it was probably better for Tom Flanagan's career that, that he, he moved on and he got his contract. Not sure it was better for Sunderland. Tom Flanagan would have played half a dozen games over the last six weeks if, if he'd still been there. Somebody on a, on a fan site made a, a very good point about that, saying that if there was a manager in the building on transfer deadline day, no way is Tom Flanagan leaving the football club. And I, I think that, that that's a very good way of putting it. The other one was Denver Hume, which I'm I'm just I'm not sure that they needed to sell Denver Hume. I think at the end of the transfer window, Dennis Serkin was kind of looked a bit punch drunk and looked like he he could do with being removed from the firing line a bit. Um and that, that there wasn't any option to really do that once once you've sold Denver Hume and indeed Flanagan can play left back. I just don't know. I just it, it just feels like I could see that maybe Denver Hume, for his career, it might have been better for him to move move on and move away from Sunderland. But to me, that's a deal that could have you could have addressed that in the summer rather than doing it in January. I just don't think they particularly needed to move on from Denver Hume, and I think that was another area where they left themselves short. Yeah, well, yeah, and especially since um, we've now gone back to three at the back, <laughs> we we were short when we had two centre halves, but playing three of them were definitely short. But uh, but as, as we said, Alex Neil was the man that they went with after that recruitment process. And actually, I mean, I, I was looking at it and um, I saw that uh, the other week when he commented that he thought Nick Barnes was being disrespectful when he asked if Sunderland should be winning more convincingly at home against bottom of the table crew. But I mean, just from a media perspective, uh, the new manager seems to be the, the complete opposite in his approach to how he communicates you know, during the week and, and kind of after the game. Does that take a bit of adjusting to for, for the people who are asking the questions? Yeah, a little bit, but I mean, most of us have been around the block a few times. They are chalk and cheese, you're quite right, because, um, you know, Lee Johnson loves to talk and Alex Neal likes his press conferences done and dusted in 15 minutes. 
his answers, by the way, I think are good. Mm. Um, I think he, he he's, he's a bit of a no bullshit policy in probably a lot of things, Alex Neal, and his press conferences is one of them. And I don't mind that at all. He's, he's not particularly in love with the process of press conferences. Mm. I've, I've, I've worked with enough football managers to know the ones that like them, press conferences, and the ones that don't. And he clearly doesn't particularly like them. He sees it as a chore rather than something where, you know, he can benefit and communicate, I think. I, I, and that's... There's a lot of managers like that. doesn't make them bad managers by, by any stretch of the imagination. So it's different. It's definitely different. But the, the, just the Nick Barnes thing, um, if, if, it's the, if it's what I think it is, if it's the post-match after crew, I was there, I was filming on my camera. It wasn't bad. It, it wasn't bad at all. And he, he shook Barnes' hand at the end of it. It's, I, I, you know, I don't think there's bad blood there. I, th- no. I think I think the pair of them get on okay. Yeah. Well, how, how can you fall out with uh, with Barnsley, really? I mean, exactly. You know, exactly. He's, he's, he's a lovely human teddy bear <laughs> of a man. Exactly. But but I mean, I mean just just on that, I mean the, the the difference in how the they communicate. Do you think that'll give Alex Neil a bit more grace with the fans? Because Lee Johnson took a a lot of stick with the terms he was coming out with and sometimes it was a bit fluffy and it wasn't kind of getting to the point that, you know, when we played bad, there, was, there wasn't really that. He was talking about getting it through the zones or something like that and people were saying, can you not just say we didn't play very well? But Alex Neil seems to be doing that. Do you think he'll get kind of more favour from the fans from doing that? Possibly, yeah. I think I think there might just be a point that, that it's different, hmm. you, you know, because because there was a year of Lee Johnson and and his two minute answers to questions and his process and <laughs> and this and that and look it was all right he was he's he's a good communicator even if there's there's just occasionally an element of Ricky Gervais in the office about him um, but he, I I liked him you know I liked I liked speaking to him and, and stuff like that but I t- I take your point and I think after that after Lee Johnson I think that the crowd will like a man who tells it how it is and does so in 15 seconds as opposed to one minute 45. Um, so it it might give him, I, I don't know if it gives him any grace because I think four years into League One with, with the, you know, the looming nightmare of a fifth being ever present, that is such an overwhelming thing that I, I don't think, no matter what he says or how he says it, I, th- I don't think you'll get grace from the way you communicate you get grace from getting promoted. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, on the pitch under Alex Neil, we seem to have tightened up defensively. We look more organised, I'd say, rather than kind of solid. We look more organised. But the performances have still been mixed. And there's, there's two ways you could look at it. And you said this right at the top, actually. Could look at one win in eight away from home, as I said in the intro, or the fact that we're unbeaten in six, which just kind of confuses yeah. things. So, I mean... You said you can't make a conclusion, and that that's absolutely fair. But what was your assessment just on the early days of, of Alex Neil? Um, I'm, I'm actually kind of cautiously optimistic about it. I, th- I think with any manager, you you might get a bump, but the, sometimes the idea of the bump, I think, is is overegged. The sort of dead cat bounce. I think just as often as that happens, what you get is a few clunky performances where he's bedding in instructions and different ways of playing and a different approach to being a football team. And I think to an extent, we're still kind of in that process because under Lee Johnson, I thought Sunderland played some lovely football at times this season going forward. But obviously we've discussed the the things that weren't so great about it. With Alex Neil, it, it it's still a little bit clunky at times. And my God, the first half performance against Fleetwood in, in the 3-1 was just bereft of anything. It was like a great 
void of, that you're just howling into. It was yeah. awful. But then they ended up winning the game. The crew game, I, I, I covered that as well. That was crap. Mm. But but then they scored two really good goals in the last six minutes. The most promising aspect of it and the most obvious fix that everyone can see is that they're letting in less goals. Mm. It's the first thing that he identified. It's the obvious thing. Sunderland have been scoring for fun under Lee Johnson, but they couldn't stop a pig in a passage at the back, basically. And you're not going to get promoted doing that. And Alex, Alex, Alex Neal's here to get them promoted. And so the first thing you've got to do is shut the back door. And by shutting the back door, sometimes that's going to maybe take away a little bit from um, the resources that you commit to attacking. And I think that's kind of where they are at the moment. But I'm hoping that, that it'll click, basically. I mean, it, it's got to click quickly. And that's what we'll I'm sure we'll come on to. But I think making that team solid was important. And I think largely he's done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned those performances at home against Fleetwood and Crew. They weren't convincing. But as you said, we got the results. The last two away games, Charlton and Lincoln, almost kind of carbon copies of each other end and goalless. But we had chances. I mean, do, do you think it's a concern at all that we've gone too far the other way and sacrificed a, you know, too much going forward? Or do you think there's something there we're still making, you know, we're still getting the chances and it's just a matter of time before we, we start putting them away? More the second part than, than the first part. Yeah, look, 2 nil nil draws were, and they should have won both of them. You're quite right. Fantastic save at the end by the Lincoln keeper as well. Yeah. I haven't said that Patterson save was good as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it could have went either way. Yeah, <laughs> but I would tell you this question, at, at this stage, to kind of refer to the previous answer, I still think that, that manager and squad are in the learning phase. And it's a question of tinkering and a question of balance. On another day, they win both those games. Hopefully, it's not not a, a, a massive structural problem. I did I, occasionally you get the feeling that Stewart's a bit isolated, but look, what center forward playing up front by himself isn't occasionally a bit isolated. So I, I would hope that it's a question of balance and tinkering with the sort of the concentration on defending and, and the freedom to attack. So I, I think I think he's a good manager. I think uh, and. I, I, at this point, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt on things that aren't quite happening. Well, well, that's it. I mean, I, I mean, you mentioned tinkering there, and I mean, if I think back to previous promotion campaigns, you know, going way back, you know, kind of Dennis Smith, Peter Reid, all of them, Mick McCarthy, whatever, you could almost just name the starting eleven. Unless we had a suspension or an injury, you could just say, well, that's our starting eleven, and right, well, he's injured, and so and so will come in. But I mean, th- th- this season was the same with Lee Johnson, where you couldn't really. You couldn't really say what our starting eleven or our best eleven was. From my point of view, Alex Neil's still a long way from that. I mean, has he got the time to tinker? I mean, how how much has he got to say? Well, let's have this system and and let's let's go with that, and that's our best team. Yeah, there's a context problem, isn't it? And it, it's kind of a calendar problem. The two nil nil draws that that you mentioned, Lincoln and Charlton. If those results and those performances had come in, say, late November, you would think. Ah, okay, bit annoyed not to win, but away point, on the road, move on, let's get on to next week. But they've come in March when the club's facing a battle to get into the playoffs. Those results don't look as good. He's only got seven games left. It's nice for a manager to have a long run-up and a pre-season and get his ideas across. You're right, he hasn't got time. He's got to make do and mend. He's, he's got to find quick fixes. He's got to get results. He said so himself on a number of occasions in his snappy 22nd angry sound bites. <laughs> uh, you know, that basically the most important job at the moment for the group is to win football matches. 
the whole beautiful football thing can wait. Yeah. And and I mean, just on that point of being able to tinker and work with it, do you think it's almost a positive that we've now got this international break and he's got a couple of weeks to, to look at things on the training ground? Very much so. I mean, they didn't have a midweek game before Lincoln and it was a good performance at Lincoln. Obviously, they didn't get the results, but it, it, it was a, a better performance than the performances against Fleetwood and against Crewe. Uh, and th- so now... It's, it's quite an extended break now, isn't it? Mm. Yes, this is the, like the first real block of time that Alex Neal is going to have to actually do some some serious coaching work with that group of players. I think it's a very good thing for them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned the time he's got. I mean, uh, uh, another concern I've got around kind of the change of manager and the, and the timing of it all was the similarities with last season. Um, you know, Lee Johnson, as we mentioned earlier, he ended up being tarnished with the failure of not gaining promotion, which kind of spilled into this season for for a lot of fans. And when this season kicked off, he was under pressure from the off, really, because of that. I mean, is there, is there a danger that we could be repeating previous mistakes if we don't ultimately get promoted? Or do you think fans will give Alex Neil a bit more time because maybe there's a bit more understanding around this season? Um I'd, I'd hope he'd be given time. If, if Sunderland don't get promoted, it's, it'll ultimately happen on his watch. But, you know... Eight games, what? So basically, let's let's say the doomsday scenario and they don't even make the playoffs. But even then, he will only have been in charge of the team for 15 games. That That's that's not a third of a season. Sunderland supporters are not stupid. It will go down as happening on his watch, but he can't take all the blame for it. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels like if that happens, you just, you just worry that the same thing might, happened to Alex Neil as happened with Lee Johnson because he was under the cost yeah. from the beginning of this season. That's true, but what are you going to do? Um, that That's just the nature of it. There's, you manager of Sunderland at this point in Sunderland's history, there's one job, get promoted. If you don't do it, well, that, that then you've failed. Mm. Then each season is a failure. So yeah. tough. I, you just you've got to got to crack on with it. Yeah. Uh, if if he doesn't get promoted this season, barring unforeseen events, he'll be in charge over the summer. He'll start next season. He'll have to get them promoted next season. If it gets to January and they're eleventh in the table, he'll be out of a job. He'll know that. Yeah, that's just the way it is. And that and that's at Sunderland. It's the way it is times a thousand because there is this huge overbearing weight of just the oddness still at this point and the wrongness of a club that size and a stadium that size and a fan base that size having to exist in League One. Yeah. Well, as you said, we currently sit sixth. Sheffield Wednesday are a point behind with a game in hand. And we're hardly kind of firing on all cylinders, if you like, you know, kind of stuttering stuttering along from game to game. I mean, what what's, what's your gut feeling? Do you think we'll, we'll be taking part in the playoffs this year? Um. Yeah. So let's do it. So Gillingham at home, got to win. Um, <laughs> Oxford away, they're solid. Tough one. Let's yeah. call that a draw. Tough, tough. Let's call it a draw. Optimistic. Shrewsbury at home, got to win. Yeah. Then Plymouth away two, two, three days later. Tough uh, one. Because those, those are the Easter fixtures. So I'm I'm going to say Sunderland will get beaten at Plymouth. Cambridge at home, got to win. I think it is in Sunderland's best interest for the Rotherham game to be rearranged for the last week of the season, by which time Rotherham will be promoted and yeah. like you know, basically be playing in flip-flops. I can see Sunderland winning that game. And then the last game at Morecambe, it, it won't surprise me if they go into that without a playoff place being secured and needing a result. 
if 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 the, we sort of worked on on that basis, that would put them around or on about eighty two points, and I would think that that should be enough. Say if they win at Morecambe on the last day, that would get them to around the eighty two point mark. That should do it for the playoffs. Mm. Well, my concern is a lot of those teams, the Oxfords, the Plymouths, Sheffield Wednesday is actually, they're hitting good runs. They're actually, well, I know Sheffield Wednesday kind of went down the other week, didn't they? they, they I can't remember who they yeah. got beat. They got beat the other week. I can't remember who by. But most of them are hitting decent runs and we're, we're kind of stuttering. Even though we're, we're unbeaten, we're, we're just clawing at results yeah. rather than routinely getting them. I, I, I know what you mean. And... Kind of the thing you've got to hope is that maybe after this international break, something does click and and Sunderland start playing a bit better and and winning a few more matches. And because they haven't got many matches left to win, and as it stands, the way they're playing, if this if if this is the level that they play at for the the rest of the season, whether they get in the playoffs or not, I don't think that they'll get promoted. They have to be better than they are now. But as as I've said, I can see them getting better. I can see Alex Neal getting the message across. I can see the eureka moment where everyone, where they, they play a good performance, they, they win by two or three goals and everyone goes, ah, right, that's it. This is the plan. I can see that happening. So I'm, I'm not I'm not ruling it out. I remember the last time we spoke on the podcast and I said I thought someone would get promoted, <laughs> well, you know, on the early basis of the season. Yeah. Now, I'm still not prepared to to rule that out. But it's obviously a, a lot less likely than it felt back in the in the in the balmy days of early September. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was listening back to that and uh, remembering all the optimism we had back in September. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. And interesting. I was, I was talking to a Sheffield Wednesday fan this morning, who's uh, well, maybe done the smart thing from his point of view. He's already booked his hotel for Wembley. <laughs> so um, we'll see. We'll see. I, th- I think I. Look, God bless. I'm sure the Sheffield Wednesday fan is a lovely person. Uh, but I think that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a cliche now, that isn't it? Well, I'll book the hotels for Wembley. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I told them to give us a shout if we make it, and, and they don't. But, uh, but there you have it. I mean, Simon, you you think we're going to be in it? Let's hope so. Fingers crossed, and then we can extend the season and uh, hopefully, by hook or by crook, get out of this division because we we yeah. have to really. I mean, you said the dreaded fifth year. It, you know, we keep saying it. It has to be this year, but I'll say it again. It has to be this year, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but if it if it doesn't happen, then it has to be next year, doesn't it? It it's been a, a confusing and odd part of the club's history. This it it there's there's a lot to be said for winning football matches, and and over the course of this, these few years, they they've won a lot of matches, and that was after a period of eight or nine years where Sunderland didn't win a lot of matches, one way or another. So. It's not. It's not like it's been all horrible and awful, but it's. It's just. It's gone on too long. It's like the joke's not funny anymore. Um, yes, that. As I said, I, I. I haven't given up hope for this year. I, I remember. Obviously, I, I. I cover all the northeast teams, and I, I remember being at Wembley a few years ago and seeing Alex Neal's Norwich absolutely do a number on Middlesbrough in the playoff final, the Championship playoff final. Alex Neal knows his way around the playoffs, so you know it. it it's. Yeah, it, it has to be this year, but it had to be last year. It had to be the year before, and it had to be the year before that, didn't it? It's just it it still feels wrong. It just it just does. I mean, you, you think back to great days and nights in the Premier League at, at the Stadium of Light. You think back to Defoe scoring the winning goal against Chelsea. You, you think back to better times, better teams, and you look at thirty thousand turning up to watch them be rubbish against Crew, 
and, and you, you shake your head and you think it's amazing. It's it's just those people, that fan base deserve better than this. It just deserves so much more than this. And it could still happen this year. And if it doesn't, praise God, it happens next. Well, you never know. We might have our day out in the capital, you know, Trafalgar Square, and this time, you know, actually win it, which would be a nice way oh, to... Oh, well, yeah, I mean... It gets to the playoffs and then there's the whole different Sunderland in the playoffs existential crisis to get through as well. But, you know, <laughs> well, there's, there's, I'll take there's that, always a problem. I'll take that right now, to be honest, Simon. But, yeah. uh, but yeah. That's it. The problem, the problem with Sunderland is there's always a problem. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully uh, it'll it'll turn out all right. But uh, but thanks again, Simon. I really appreciate your time and, and hopefully catch up soon. Yeah. Look, look, it's always nice to come on. Always nice. Always nice to speak about it. Let's all keep our fingers crossed. I think I think. The, the northeast football scene would be a better place if if Sunderland were moving up the ladder. Yeah, well, I was going to say maybe we could uh, if we get there, we could meet up for a preview for the playoffs or, or something like that. That would be nice. Consider it a date in the diary. Good stuff. Well, thanks again, Simon. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Um, we've got a bit of a break now with the international window, but uh, I'm sure another podcast will be dropping soon. And keep a look out and what reports on the site for all the latest. Uh, but from us, it's bye for now. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.